0: Hi everyone, welcome to the fourth episode of the House of the Deaf podcast, in season two. As always, from Austin, Texas, there's Rafael Calantonio. Hi, Raf. Hello, Peter. This time we have another guest who has officially changed the landscape of gaming forever, co-creator of Fallout, Arcanum, Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines, Outer Worlds, and other cult classic games, game designer and programmer, Mr. Tim Cain. Hi, Tim, thanks for joining us.
1: Hello, nice to meet
0: you, Peter. It's a dream that came true, actually. So nice to meet you. You are entering the house of the dead. About ten years ago, uh, just you know, a story, a little story to start. About 10 years ago, I've had an interview with your colleague, Fergus Urquhart, and I told him exactly what I'm about to tell you now. You've changed my life forever, frankly. Yes, my good sir, period. I think after Doom, Fallout was the second game that I was crazy obsessed with. So many great memories and inspiration. I'm sure you get a lot of this, so sorry about this fanboy moment. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Congratulations and happy birthday to your baby!
1: It makes me feel old, but uh, it's nice that it's it's still around and people are still enjoying that IP. Yeah,
0: it's it, it changed lives of many people around the globe, and uh, well, I can tell you about uh, Russia. It's it's been a long a long term dream for Russian devs to make. Russian Fallout. It's kind of local legend here, so yeah.
1: <laughs> I heard that that a lot of in in Russia people live action role play. Yeah. Fallout. Hmm. I think that's amazing. That must be fun to do. Have you ever well, done that?
0: Well, well, n- no, not me. But uh, I know people who did that, and uh, actually, it's uh, you know, it's a huge part of culture code uh, for people. Uh, from the countries of uh, the ex USSR because when you uh, when you're a kid and you run out of your house and there's uh, some weird structure in, in your in your yard like in the city, not not in, in the country um, part uh, And uh, your mother says that it's, uh, it's an entrance into the n- nuclear bunker. of course, you will love games like fallout and stalker and stuff like that it's really it's really close to our you know to our mindsets and to our culture and hearts
1: i always wanted to but i don't have the right background but i always wanted to do a fallout that was set in russia and and another one really? set in china just to do the other side of what the world was like yeah after.
2: it's a good question yeah what is the rest of the world like
1: yeah, I would have loved to have seen it, because we had hints of things, because like there was some Chinese technology in Fallout 1, um, the the sub that had landed. We talked about Russia, and we talked about China, and Canada, for that matter. Um, but it would be nice to see a, a Fallout set there, rather than, here's another Fallout in another part of the US. I've seen the US, let's do other places.
0: Yeah, well, and we've seen a lot of Fallout set in, in other parts of US. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, actually, actually, there are uh, some games that are uh, that that can be called Russian Fallout. We have Atom RPG, uh, which is set in the alternative uh, 1980s. Uh, and we also have a game called Encased. Uh, in my opinion, it's uh, probably the closest thing to Fallout made by a team from Saint Petersburg. Some guys uh, were from Larian Studios there, so they worked on Divinity: uh, Original Sin series before that. But for um, the majority of the uh, of the devs from the the studio is, is closed by now, sadly but uh, it was called Dark Crystal Games, uh, for the majority of them it was their first project and it's really, really cool uh, for, for the, the first game, so uh, if you're interested, check it out, Alternative 80s, many cool references, but it's not a, uh, it's not a f- uh, fan fiction, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a cool standalone game with its uh, really, really nice ideas. So uh, and I think Raphael has something to to add to this fanboy uh, moment too, since we're both big fans.
2: Uh, I mean, we uh, I, I talked to Tim last week actually, uh, <laughs> and uh, we uh, I went full f- already pretty pretty fanboy on him. Uh, <laughs> you know, yes, he, he knows he knows my passion for Fallout. I was also gonna say, you know, there was something about the atmosphere in Fallout uh, that was. Yeah, I mean it's branding forever, right? Like I, I and and part of the atmosphere, of course, is the the sound, like the the, the those uh, those uh, soundscapes, those music musical cues. That, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're so strong, so good. I love that. I don't exactly know who is that person, uh, but uh, hey, kudos to to whoever designed those soundscapes.
1: That was uh. Those ambient tracks that played when you were playing the game, Mark Morgan made yeah.
0: that. one of my favorite Martin composers. Morgan. All right. Thank you. Yeah, uh, he was fantastic. Um,
1: I remember uh, our audio director, Charles Deenan, said, what should we tell him to do? And I gave him a stack of CDs. It's like Apex Twin, Brian Eno. Um, there might have been a Depeche Mode in there. I don't know why. But I gave him a stack of those and listed tracks. And I said, these are tracks that I absolutely love. Can you make something that sounds like it belongs with these this kind of music and what he returned was fantastic it
2: was just incredible is it still, still like working listening. somehow for you
1: um he i think he's done work uh, he went to the movies he started doing movie work
0: oh okay but i think and, he's yeah, back it, in games he's also uh, done the wasteland two and three if i'm not wrong yeah i think so so he came back to games but he was he was out of it for a while but
1: Yeah, we, Fallout 1, so many things happened that just were serendipity. It was not planned. We just, we got the perfect person at the perfect time who was resourceful and brilliant. Like our manual, Chris Taylor writing our manual, brilliant. Um, When we lost the GURPS license, Chris had a homemade game system that was most of special. I think all I added was luck. I was a. I was really big into luck, and uh, it was just amazing that we had these kind of resources that we could just tap into.
2: Yeah, that's that's. Um, Sometimes there's this magic, uh, magic combination of events where everything is just right. I had a. I had a question, and I don't know if we are officially kicking off the, the, the podcast questions, but uh, uh, like I relate a lot to what I'm gonna ask you. Uh, you you Tim, you've had. A set of incredible successes and also some uh, let, let's call them near successes, right? right. Bombs. Uh, yeah. Well, the same, you know. So that's that's why I, that's why I dare asking. Uh, and when we talked about that last time, uh, you were saying you you feel like uh, those are necessary, though. Like they're great they're great to learn, uh, and you learn more from those, right? And uh, I, as much as I can relate, and and I also you know I also felt the pain on on, on my end when 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 those when those happen. But, uh, you know, but I tend to agree with you, though. That's the way you learn. So what, what, what's your experience with that? What would you say about that? It, so after
1: I made Fallout, there was a lot of things that myself and the other people worked on it. We thought, wow, we did a really good job at this and this and this. But it took me a, a while and a few more games to realize there were some things we just got lucky at. We were good at it. We just got lucky. Um, and there were other things that I realized, like, I wrote the introduction to Fallout. The, the war never changes thing. Um, and while I thought it was a pretty good piece of writing, Ron Perlman saying that elevates it into something really amazing because Ron Perlman could read the phone book and you'd be like, wow, this is great. <laughs> um, so I tried to do writing. Um, I did a little bit of writing in Arcanum, but I did a lot more in Temple of Elemental Evil. I'm not a good writer. Temple of Evil's writing is not good. And I just learned that I'm good at some kinds of writing. Like, um, Leonard Barsky was really good at writing. He was the lead artist on Fallout. He did a lot of writing. Um, he's become more of a narrative designer now. And we've talked about my writing and he said, I'm good at, at shorter things. Um, like an introduction or lore text or a found object that you have to, that has text attached to it. But if I actually try to write dialogue and character um, like anything that especially that's gonna be done with voiceover, I'm really bad at that. I'm just I don't know. so i I didn't learn that limitation until I tried to do it at scale and utterly failed. And there's just been a lot of other lessons like that. like how I'm good at managing some kinds of people and not others. I'm good at managing certain size of team, but not others. Um, and what was good about that was when I finally did outer worlds just a few years ago. I had things to say to all the leads because I was the co-game director with Leonard, and I sat down with my lead designer and I'm like, "I'm going to work on this, but I'm not going to touch this, this, or this. You have to do those things. I'm not good at it, and it's right. something that I wouldn't have known how to say 25 years ago."
2: Yeah, that's a good one. I think we uh, it's it takes uh, it takes that to learn how to to hire people that are better than us at in some some of the areas. Uh, because, yeah, ultimately the result would be better. Yeah, you have to hire people who are complementary to you. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean
1: people tell you how good you are. I mean, you know, people who have skill sets that are good for where you're not so good.
0: Yeah, right. Well, uh, by the way, uh, what part of Arcanum writing was yours? Because I've uh, I've replayed this game... Uh, again this summer, this past summer, and uh, I was... Uh, I was possessed! I was possessed! Gentlemen, you you wouldn't believe... Uh, I mean, uh, I've got a special... I've got a special laptop, which I use for uh, RPGs, because I can take the, my favorite games with me and uh, lie in bed or uh, ride somewhere, or uh, you know travel, and uh, Arcanum was just a blast. I, I completely forgot it. Uh, I used to I used to install and replay it, like year after year after year. But uh, this year, uh, because of all uh, probably because of all the depressive things going on in the world right now, uh, I needed to place. I needed to, I needed a, a, some place to hide, um, which differs from our world man Arcadum. that's that's genius so which part did you write tell us
1: um i didn't write any of the characters mm-hmm. um, which is why i didn't learn my lesson until temple which i did after i wrote i wrote the manual most of it and i wrote um when we were doing quests um one thing that i learned was a lot of people on the team hadn't really ever been uh game masters either for D or gurps or any of the other tabletops and for me it was no issue coming up with quests i think i think i wrote a document with a hundred quests in it here's a here's a hundred things and i put it into our source safe and i said whenever you need a quest idea check it out read up on the quest if you use it don't delete it just scrap um, re rewrite it in the document with strikeout so someone knows it's been used and then that person went and wrote the character's dialogue for giving out the quest and all the stages it went through. And we found that worked really well because people often hit uh, writer's block, and then they would go grab this quest document of mine and say, well, you could have a quest for somebody's lost this object, and it's, it, it, or some necromancers done this. And we had a ton of those, and I had fun writing them, but I never, when it actually got time to implement them, someone else did the dialogue associated with the quest. Yeah. Uh, one
0: one of the things that I really love about Arcanum, and I've noticed it just this past summer, is that if you play a, a character with low, really low intellect, it's not just your dialogues that change. It's also your diary that changes. And it's so funny. <laughs> Stupid gnome gave me a task. <laughs> we did that in
1: Fallout, and the idea was from... I played a D&D game with someone who rolled a three. We, we did the old, we did we did the 46, pick the best, and he rolled four ones. So he had a three. So he took a fighter and he put it in his intelligent thinking that would be a dumb stat. And I told him, you're only allowed to speak in single syllable words. <laughs> when you're t- saying something the character's saying, single syllable words only. And he had found a red dragon and run away from it. And he ran up to the group and he said, red thing, bad because he couldn't say dragon or fire, or he was like bad thing. Couldn't say lizard, and he was sitting there like, how do I tell them there's a red dragon coming down? And it was hilarious. And I, I I told that to a lot of the designers on Fallout, and they're like, let's do it, let's do that in, in Fallout. And I loved it. It was hilarious.
0: Yeah, uh, I ended up with uh, quitting that character after like ten levels. Because in Arcanum, I've tried that in Fallout uh, also, but in Arcanum I've noticed that, well, if your character is kind of normal... Then everybody around around you behaves normal. They're polite and they give you quests, etc. But if your character has a, a, a one point in, <laughs> in their intellect, then everybody just gets gets bad to you. You know, they they, they talk shit, they they rude, and uh, I felt. I felt pity about my half-ogre and I just go, no, 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 no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play some other character because this is really heartbreaking for me. Well,
1: this is, I wish I'd given more feedback because part of that was you were a half-ogre. There's racial adjustments, but I also would question what your beauty score was because it probably wasn't that high. Not, if you make really a high, high. beauty, low-int, people like you, but they kind of feel sorry for you or they, they try to take you <laughs> under their wing. Um there's so much reactivity in that game we yeah we we were young we spent many more hours our life work balance was not good but fallout has every idea we ever had plus the kitchen sink
2: is um is the reactivity is that the essence of why you make the games you you make is it, what, what, what would you say is the thing that is is so important and so uh exciting to you in in those kind of games. Yeah, I think what drew me to RPGs, tabletop and then computer, is
1: I want to make a character and play through a story, but I want the story to react to me, to what kind of character I am and what I do. Um when we made Fallout, uh we were we was originally gurps and I was teaching everybody on the team gurps by having them come in in the evening and we played through a dungeon that I made that only had six rooms in it. Six room dungeon. We ran three groups through it and every group had a wildly different experience. And uh, Leonard Borsky had come and watched and he said, well, why did you change it so much? And I said, I didn't do anything. It was every group, they reacted to different encounters differently. They had different ability sets. um, And so it it seemed like a very different experience to them. and, I, and he said, well, let's do that in our game. And I said, we can do that, but we we'll have to be very careful about how we make the game. It has to be systemic. We have to put rules in the game at the code and script level that just react to things the player does. We can't, we can't script what people, what, what they do. Um, and it was very important. So we had a lot of code that watched what you did, supposedly to adjust things like um, NPC dialogue and karma, and reputations that you would get. But by the end of the game, we had all of this stuff we had watched you do. So that turned into the end slides. And that became an important thing because it told you this game is watching you.
0: Mm -hmm. And not only is
1: the story changing and environments are changing, but at the end of the game, we're going to tell you what you did, what you're responsible for. Because I was very upset when I would find people saying, this game lets you kill children. And I'd be like, Mm -hmm. that's an odd way to turn that around. You killed a child. You did. It wasn't the game let you. You did it. The game saw you do it, labeled you a child killer, made a lot of people hate you, but you did that. The game didn't do it. In fact, you you could very easily not do it. And so that's why I like those end slides telling you like you destroyed this town or this town is thriving now because of you.
2: That's a little similar to uh, what I often say is like the games that allow you to do bad things also uh, recognize that it's it's an opportunity for you to to be good and so like it has more meaning uh, if you play as a as a as a good person because you could play as a bad person whereas most games don't let you play bad anyway
1: people were very surprised that you could play fallout as a pacifist and not attack anyone um because it didn't seem like that kind of game but if you play a talking character there's very few people that in fact, I don't think you have to directly kill anyone. I think when you kill the master, he or you talk to the master, he ends up killing himself. I hope that's not a spoiler mm-hmm. for a twenty-five-year-old game.
0: <laughs> you can set up his death somehow. I remember that I just blew blew the bomb and just ran away. I, I don't want to. Uh, it was my like second or third uh, walkthrough, and I just I don't want to see your face anymore. <laughs> I mean, you you can kill him directly with weapons, yeah, you can. you can blow up, but it's, it's pretty it's
1: pretty hard. Yeah. And so there's a talking solution that involves explaining his plan and how awful it is. And you have to have a lot of information. I mean, you have to have talked to a lot of other people Mm -hmm. to be able to say these things to him. But if you've done that, if you've been really good at talking to people and learning what the world's like, there is a talk solution to the end boss. And I think to me, that's why that's what every RPG should have. It's not an action game, just an action shooter. You're not making an FPS. If it's an rpg you should be able to play your character how you want to play
2: it well i totally agree in fact even if it's an fps we we made dishonored where uh, it's kind of an action fps and you can finish the game without killing anyone right so i very much agree with you on the pacifist option another happy Thank birthday you.
0: by the way yeah congratulations yeah, true. 10 years Ten years.
2: Yeah. 10 years crazy uh tim you've been around for a while right like uh in in the in the industry And uh, how have you seen it change? I mean, it's a loaded question. And the, you know, but like, what are are you, I'm sure there are things that are better, things that are worse, uh, things that are just different. What's what's your take on that?
1: There are so many ways. I actually, I started
2: in 1981. Um,
1: I got a job when I was 16 at a game company in Virginia, which is where I grew up. Um, there are so many axes of how the industry's changed i mean back then it was tiny niche um now it's what bigger than movies um when when i actually i actually came to california to work on a phd and i decided i didn't really like it and i left after i got a masters and my phd advisor yelled at me like for an hour that i was wasting my life i was throwing away everything that i'd worked on that was in 1991 in '98, he called me up and asked me to come back to the university and teach a class in game design, mm-hmm. because in that seven years, the industry had become a lot more noticeable. People were coming into computer science to go become game programmers, and they had to adapt. Um, just so many other things, though. The the barrier to entry is so small with Unreal and Unity being free; anyone can make a game. Uh, the flip side of that is the signal-to-noise ratio is so low. It's so hard to find good games because for every good game, there are so many not so good games. <laughs> it's it's there's so much money in the industry now. Um, it's I see most innovation happening in the indie side or with smaller teams because once you have 150 people on a team, no one wants to be risky. So. Mm. They want design docs done up front. They want to know what the hook is. They want to know how this is re- who the demographic is. I-, I was never asked who the demographic was for Fallout. Yeah. We were yeah. just making a game. Mm-hmm. But I was asked who the demographic was for Outer Worlds, and I was like, I, uh, the people who like Fallout? I mean, it's so it's it's dramatically changed. Um, I haven't even touched on technology. I mean, technology is wildly different now, and. The, the cultures are different, work-life balance has finally become a thing um, mm-hmm. just in the last few years.
2: What, what is the thing you miss the most from the, the, the old days and, and what is the thing that you think is so much better now?
1: I suppose I miss being able to make a game without so much advanced planning and o- constant oversight. Um, right. It's weird, and I hope I don't depress anyone who wants to get in the game industry, but even now, after 41 years, I have people second guessing everything I do. Are you sure you want to put that in? Are you sure that makes sense for this setting? Are you sure that's a good feature to put in? And I'm like, we can talk about it again. Um, And it's weird because some of the things people have told me are just so strange. I had somebody tell me that we should, our factories in outer world shouldn't have smokestacks on them because smokestacks are not sci-fi and I was like have you seen the beginning of the Blade Runner movie <laughs> uh have you seen City of lost children you know it's like I I don't know how to answer that yeah um so there's that um things that have gotten better I mean uh, people I think are better compensated now and even people who may not believe me, the pay was really bad in the 80s and 90s um mm. i i didn't discover this until i went to go buy a house uh when i was 29 and every place i went to to get a loan turned me down and they said you're you're not paid enough to buy a house you're you're basically on a subsistence wage you can't you can't buy a house in california and i was shocked because i was like well, I've, I've worked for almost 20 years uh, and it was or at that time i guess it was 18 years and nope that was is you're not going to buy a house um the cultures are better um way more diversity in people making games which is nice you get a lot more people from different backgrounds and different abilities making games which makes the stories richer and also some of the stuff you, the features you can put in richer because people know like what it means to animate a human doing certain things or um, how to create characters that look wildly different um and that's just a really nice thing to see in in modern games
0: so yeah uh we've been talking about branching storylines and uh, reactivity in video games And uh, your games, Tim, are known for this, and uh, in the past years many devs think about saving resources and adding something that most gamers will completely miss might be dangerous. uh, Except from the cases when you have a huge publisher behind your back. and uh, besides in the age of twitch and uh, youtube it's hard to talk about things like replayability Uh, what's your take on this in 2022
1: i've heard that argument of of getting rid of um, a lot of replayability Uh, but i don't know it's the same argument i hear about games should just be single single player games should be gone Mm -hmm. because games as a service is where everything's going i think there's a huge risk of losing a, an entire segment of the gaming population to whom those things are really important. I don't think they're that much effort to add. I mean, they they are work, but um, it's with good tool sets, like Obsidian has an excellent dialogue tool set for making not only branching dialogue, but reactive dialogue to react to things like game state and um inventory and just all kinds of things. I think with the right tool set, um, it's not much more work to create a very reactive game. And I think it's one area a game can shine over a book or a movie mm-hmm. is reacting to the player. There's you form this almost relationship with the game because you're doing something in the game's like, I see you doing that. Mm-hmm. And changes it's nature. Um it was it was a lot of uh discussion for me to get flaws in our worlds but they grew out of the reactivity it's because the game was watching you do things and and eventually i said well wow you've fallen a lot or you've taken a lot of damage from the auto or from raptidons or whatever maybe we can have phobias and it 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 grew out of that and i think that those kind of features can be added to games to give them a really modern sense of involving themselves with the player and expanding player agency without really making the game much more expensive to make.
2: Yeah. Do you, uh, do you think that those new business models, uh, you talked about game as a service, uh, we can talk also about microtransactions transactions or even Game Pass, frankly. Um, do you think they, they have an impact on the game designed? And if so, what type of impact?
1: Fortunately it's never impacted my games. Um, but it they started to. Um, I worked on an MMO and uh, before I left uh, there there was a talk about making it instead of a monthly payment to making it something where you you buy things. It's a microtransact microtransaction based. That changes a lot of how you design a game. Um and you see it a lot in mobile games where a big chunk of the game isn't either, either isn't available, or in some cases you can't even really win without spending some money. It's, I think it's unfortunate. I think there's the game industry, I mean, the, the game genres are a big pie. And, and I don't think we should just go, this is the only kind of slice we're ever going to make. I think there's room for microtransactions and there's room for games of service. I don't think everything should be that. Um, I do know that everybody in marketing and the business side are like, well, that's where all the money is. Um, I don't know how to argue that other than to say games are partially art and partially business. And if you really fall down on the business side, you're going to regret it. I, I, I can't exactly predict how, but I guarantee games will lose a big part of their soul if everything becomes a business driven decision.
2: Yeah. Isn't it difficult as uh, uh, someone who's uh, both entrepreneur and both creative uh, to tame both sides and, and uh, you know, make a, a reasonable, um, which part of you wins? That's the question, you know, <laughs> which in your case, Tim,
1: it's well, it's interesting because I, I, I used to get asked that question because I love programming. And I also love doing design. Um, right. And the designs came out of the fact that whenever I'd go to play a tabletop RPG, <laughs> no one else wanted to run it. So I had to be the dungeon master, or game master, or whatever it was called. And people always said, well, that must be like two parts of your head and they're fighting. And I'm like, no, they're pretty happy with each other. Um, I kind of feel like we can, like, especially if you go into a game going, we want to do microtransactions. There are clever and fun and creative ways of doing that, that don't Cause the foundation of your game's design to crumble or erode. Um, but the same way, I don't want every game in the world to be a first person shooter, and I don't want every game in the world to be a post apocalyptic game. If you decide every game in the world has to be multiplayer or microtransaction or some other game as a service, so many opportunities are going to be lost. And it, it's like, Balance in balance in all things. And there's got to be balance there, and yeah. I hope they find it.
2: There is a bit of uh, convergence, right? It's like in every ways. Uh, I think uh, even without talking about business uh business styles but also technology and uh and type of rendering there was a moment where we had as many genres as there were games in a way i mean talking about the 80s 90s right and then everybody would make their own type of controls like oh yeah it's going to be you know w uh, q s uh you know q a s d sorry uh, because i'm i'm french so like the keyboard is different uh but and then eventually everything became third person, like so, like the adventure games that used to be 2D, and the action games that used to be, you know, top down or whatever. Like they all kind of fused into, let's say, Tomb Raider at some point, you know, uh, where every game was an action adventure game somehow. Uh, and then every now everybody uses epic technology you know or unity so like you really you have like mostly two engines plus of course people are still doing their own engine but like the majority are, are using the same thing the same features and now we're going through the same business model so yeah there is a there is a bit of a of a risk there right like to to unify everything into everything looks the same game at the end
1: that's why I like playing indie games um not predominantly but i I like dipping my Toe in the indie pool every now and then, and seeing what's fun there, because I see a lot of innovation happening in that space. A lot. It's just hard to find them. It's it's mostly yeah. word of mouth for me. But it, if you go on Steam and there's thousands of games, and it's hard to find that one.
0: Yeah, that's true. Speaking of uh, speaking of balance, uh, your uh, latest RPGs like Outer Worlds uh, differ big time from your early works. Of course, in the past 10 years, uh, Obsidian has made uh, mm, hardcore RPGs too, but Outer Worlds is a um, sort of mass hit, uh, very console-friendly, etc. Now, on the other hand, Arcanum was a mass hit of its time too, but it was so packed with content, you can't really compare it to to any other modern-day RPG. do you think, do you see any kind of balance here? What do you think of modern day RPG players from your perspective? What makes them happy and content now and what feels overwhelming?
1: Well, I'll start by saying I've had fans of my older games get mad at something like Outer Worlds. They're like, oh, why did you do that? Um, I mean, it was one of its pillars was to be casual friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, was Because I find that... Modern players, and and part of it's the way publishers, they, because you often buy a game now and you just download it, there's no manual. It used to be, if the game came on seven discs or a CD, you had an hour or two to kill while it installed. And you'd look at the manual and the manual would help teach you the game. We don't have that anymore. So people start up a game and it's like starting, I want to play, it better be easy for me to get into, or 30 minutes later, I'm abandoning it and going on to the next game that I can download instantly and stream. Um, so that's just the nature of what the, the tech is like now. We have to make games much more, not just accessible, but they have to grab you early. Um, I don't necessarily, I don't resent that, but it does mean you have to approach making your games a little differently. Um, if, it's, if it's a wild idea or if it's, if it's really hard for a lot of casual people to approach or someone on a console who's only got a controller um, and it doesn't map in the standard way to what people are used to doing with that controller, um, that can turn people off right away. And you certainly don't want to do that. I mean, the goal of a game is it shouldn't be to sell as many units as possible, but you do want a lot of people to experience what you've made. Uh, and I think that's that's the environment that anyone who's especially under 30 has grown up with There's a lot of games. I can get them relatively easily and I can get into them quickly. That's affected the designs of games um, to be a little more front loaded with what it's about. You don't want too much of the game to happen later. You don't want there to be twists and surprises. And you're not really playing a fantasy game. It's really sci-fi. It's that kind of thing. has to be
2: people want to know what they're getting into right away. I agree, and then I have like the best counter example. Have you ever played Inscription? You know, I—that's a fairly recent game, and it's two D, right? Yeah. Kind of? I have. You do? Okay. Right. It's a card game, right? And how far did you go? Because this game rocked my socks. Like I could—I I could not believe uh, what what happened. Uh, there's a huge set of twists, yeah. But, I also know a lot of people who have bounced off it.
1: So, yeah, I get right. what you're saying is the counter-argument, but I could counter the counter-argument with...
2: Yeah, yeah, no, totally. But it's, but I mean, I, you know, the bottom line, though, is that uh, it's I think it's one guy, and uh, he sold gazillion units. So... Um, so I guess when you're one guy and you still sold Brazilian units and, and a lot of people got turned off because they did not really wait long enough, it's still somehow, you know, it's still some guy good enough. Uh, but it's, I'm so admirative of the fact that he did that because it's, it's incredibly uh, ballsy, you know, to, uh, to do that in, in this
1: day and age. Have, have you played, it just came out as a game called Proteus, P-R-O-D-E-U-S? No. It, you'll play it. It, It's a new game, made in Unity, comes up, you'll play it for two minutes, and you're like, Doom, I'm playing Doom. But it's 3D, uh, it's got modern layout sensibility, um, modern loot, and uh, creature design sensibility, but it's captured Doom. In my sense, in my mind, it captured it better than the new Doom. Oh, and I was, I, I, I just started playing it two days ago, so it's brand new, and it made me go, whoa, and so there's a way to do old school and new school combined. It, I'm not sure I know all the secret sauce and how to do that, but it's, Proteus pointed me in that direction and went, they're doing it, it's possible.
0: Sounds really cool. Yeah, can we, can we please, can we please talk a bit about Bloodlines, guys?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, that's uh, one of my top 10 games. Uh, God
0: damn it, I just finished it about a half a year ago. Of course, I knew about the ex- existence of this game. I think I, I've ever bought it, um, I even bought it with Half-Life 2, because if, if I remember correctly, it came, it came out the same day, uh, but, but. When I wanted to play something, oh, it was a good strategy by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh... Well, yeah, that, that's history. That's history. Uh, but something uh, all the all the time I've tried to play. It, something got in my way. But speaking of uh, twists, uh, that that cab driver scene in the end, and the, the very end of the game, that was <laughs> mind blowing. So cool. Of course, uh, um, I mean, the funny thing is that the latest patch for this game came out like two weeks before I've launched it. Uh, like, fans, I was so surprised that the community still supports this game and updates it like every month. Uh, and it, it it's not, it, it doesn't make the, the game like the way you wanted to make it of course but it's uh it's smooth it's uh, way less boggy than i remember it from back in 20 you know 20, when, when was it released 2004 2005 something you, like, that. like 2004 early 2005 yeah maybe so of course it's 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 more it's way way more smooth than way uh, than back in the day but still um and uh, can you can you please tell us the true story behind that? I mean, I mean, aside from uh, being um, being being the captives with the situation with the source engine and uh, Valve releasing Half-Life Two, you couldn't release it before. Uh, I've read that aside from all other issues, Troika Games had to work on Bloodlines without a producer for a long time. And later, Activision, the publisher, inserted their own producer to help the studio finish it no matter what. Was that partly the case? From the outside, it may not look like a dream team like Troika may ever need an additional commander from the outside.
1: Well, I should put a big caveat. is that It was in development for a little over three years. I think it was mm-hmm. three and a half. And for the first uh, 20 months. 22 months, so almost the first two years, I was working on Tempo of Elemental Evil, so I I didn't work on it. That Bloodlines really it was a was Leonard Barsky and Jason Anderson's baby, um, and really, I mean, if you can ever get Jason Anderson to talk to, he doesn't do a lot of interviews. He's brilliant. Um, if you love The Ocean House. That was single-handedly put together by Jason. He locked himself in his room for like a week, and he came out
0: with this. I got chills right now remembering the Ocean House. I still remember it. You know, it's <laughs> been
1: almost twenty years. It's been it's
0: been almost twenty years, and I've replayed. I I, um, I remember the introduction sequences uh, uh, pretty well. But uh, I wanted to get to the uh, content that I've never seen before as fast as I could. So I kind of ran through the uh, ocean house without even my earphones on. And uh, I was having a um, Zoom conversation or something like that. And I was still screaming and jumping on my chair because of the events that uh, took place in it. Yeah, that's brilliant.
1: That's Jason. Um, Yeah. So a big chunk of the game had already been done. Uh, when I came over, it was more of a, um, I came on as to help with the programming and kind of do management. Um, what I still remember when I came on, there were anything that threw an object. I know there was a boss uh, that had a shark head that threw fish at you or whatever. Um, there were other things in the game that got thrown. Every programmer who did it wrote his own solution for that. So I found three different ways in code that things were being thrown, and all of them led to different results. Um, I ended up cl- throwing out two of them, collapsing one to something parametric, and then having everyone call that. That was the kind of thing I did, and then I did um, I did a number of the bosses. Uh, I remember I did Man Bat at the end. Um,
0: so was- that was you.
1: Yeah, that threw trucks and prostitutes at you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> frankly, yeah. I, I turned on the god mode <laughs> at
1: that point. It could be done. I've done it. Um, but yeah, he's a tough one. He's he's the end boss. Um, but yeah, that was such an interesting game because Activision really pursued us to do it. And Valve wanted us to use the engine. They wanted Source to be used. The guy who signed us on to Sierra to do Arcanum, Scott Lynch, was now working at Valve. And he was really pushing for us. And so that just came together really well. Um, and we liked the source material. We tried to we tried to make it feel like Vampire the Masquerade and not just, here's another vampire game. Because they have a lot of stuff that's unique to their world. In fact, the reason it's called a Masquerade, you're not supposed to let anyone know about vampires. Kind of hard to do when you're in Nosferatu. But, you know, we, we had a lot of sewers in the game. Um, I think the biggest thing that... It, the regret, and I have it for Temple as well, and even Arcanum, is the nature of our contracts, where that after the game came out, patches had to be approved by the publisher. So we knew it was buggy. They they actually uh, released something that wasn't a gold master. We sent some we sent a a, a a disc to them to test, and we found all these bugs in it. And so we made another disc, and they're like, oh, we already sent that off to be gold mastered. And we we're like, why? It's, and so we're like, well, we have a new one they would qa one or two patches and then stop Mm. and we're like well we're going to keep on putting out patches and every single all three of those publishers three different publishers sierra atari and then um activision they all said the same thing no you can't put out a patch unless we approve and so that's why there are so many fan patches because we were literally not only ordered not to we were threatened legally if we find a patch that you put that was put out and you helped on it we will take legal action against you.
0: Why? Is there a reason behind this? The
1: what it said in the contract was the developer could make no patches without publisher approval and quality assurance. And they didn't want to spend any more money on quality assurance. And we yeah. told them we just do the patches ourselves. And they said, Well, those won't be official. And they we're like, Well, we'll make unofficial ones. And they're like, no, we don't we don't want you to do that. And so we were literally stymied from doing anything and we we wanted all that stuff fixed and we had fixes for so many things that were wrong um so frustrating it was so frustrating
2: but yeah. plus if i re- if i recall correctly i mean we were using the source engine ourselves back then uh, with dark messiah and yeah, uh that's right uh, f- frankly uh, it was not ready for prime time like you guys shipped uh at a time where like you've you've been working on the on the you know on the on the work in progress version of source and i can't imagine how painful that must have been frankly um the faces and the physics were
1: wildly different in what shipped in vampire than what shipped in half-life uh two because at some point we just had to lock it and go we yep. just we can't keep getting wildly different uh libraries from from valve
2: yeah i mean people I think people don't always realize how painful, and I mean, it's, you know, there's some good things about game development, of course. Otherwise, we would not do them. But there's a lot of a lot of hoops, and like, it's every time it's a little bit of like pulling a miracle uh, to to ship something, right? And uh, uh, let alone something that is actually polished. You know, um, I, I told you that uh, last time we we spoke. Um, I uh, Peter, you really don't know. That's a, that's a funny story. Uh, no, it's not so fun. I mean, it's funny in retrospect, but it was sad back then. I, um, when we signed Darkness, Cyberman and Magic uh, with Ubisoft at Arcane, uh, I remember the, the woman who signed us, Virginia Gretz, she was called, uh, that was her name. She said to me, well, you guys are in competition with, a, with, a, with another game company in California uh and you get to sign this deal as soon as possible otherwise they might they might get it and uh so you know we we had our own set of pressures we we're going we we're going to we we're going to go under uh and uh Mist you know might and magic was not my preferred option because uh it was meant to be arcs 2 and uh and anyway so anyway we did it because that was that going under and years later I can't remember who told me that. Someone said, like, and I I met someone from Troika, I believe, and uh, they told me, "Hey, you know, we uh, we were in competition with uh, for for, for mind magic back then, and and you guys got it. So uh, after that, we were kind of done." And uh, that killed me because I I felt like, oh, that's like such a kind of like almost like a quest in in one of the games, uh, like uh, like you would make Tim, where uh, you know you're this like crazy moral dilemma. Yeah, uh, where oh shit! I did the right thing, but I realized like in doing so, I actually participated to the demise of one of my favorite groups. You know, <laughs> uh, so uh, that that was that was an interesting story, and you know, just realized that. It's, I,
1: you know, I still have the design doc for that. I keep everything, <laughs> so I have the design doc. I think it was Might Magic. I want to say ten, but I don't know if it was that far long.
2: At least Eight. ten. Yeah. Oh no no no! Wait, at least ten okay so yeah I oh that's right
1: because I played six back in 97 or 98 so you're right um yeah I have the design doc for that um we did a we almost did a Lord of the Rings game mm. after Arcanum I have the design doc for that I've got and it's large we actually did a demo um with a Hobbit running around the Shire uh it's it's there's so many opportunities uh, Publishers love to pit developers against each other, but there was never any feeling like that. It was just, oh, okay, we didn't get Might Magic 10, we we'll or go do something else.
2: Yeah, it's probably one game amongst so many. It, 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 it hit me probably harder because of the symbology behind it and because I only saw this, that side of, you know, my side of the story, of course. Uh, so because from your perspective, it might have been just like one pitch among so many. It's actually funny how we were in the same... Uh, you know back when i was at arcane like we've we've done so many pitch so many stuff and uh, yes you will you will meet a publisher and they will tell you something like oh you know we we need some idea for for this thing and you spend like a month on it and uh, then it doesn't go anywhere and that that that, that, that there you go those were like a little bit of creative passion points that were burned for no reason
1: <laughs> i have a, i have a similar general story which every time i meet people i never do conferences that much but when i meet people they're like oh you seem really easy to get along with I heard the opposite, <laughs> and whenever I traced it, it always came from a publisher. And um, I found out that what they do is they always want to say, "Well, this person's hard to work with," because that's how they keep the new developer in line. Well, you know, Troika went out of business because they were so hard to work with. And apparently, they let the rumor go out that we, we weren't making patches, mm. you know, because we weren't being paid to do it. And I'm like, "That's not yeah. We, that's made, we made all these free ones that yeah. you suppressed." So it's hard. What do you do when you find out 15 years later that somebody who's not even working at you know a publisher anymore was going around telling everyone, "Oh yeah, it was so hard to work with."
2: Yeah, and everybody is is covering their own asses in some ways, so you don't really know. You know, it's uh, it's part of the, you know, if if a game doesn't sell as much as people want it, is it the developer's fault or the publisher? You know, everybody is gonna is gonna blame the other. You know. Um, And the reality is like, man, a game that hit it in every way is like uh, critical and also uh, sales. Yeah, you got to have absolutely everything lined up, including luck. And, uh, you know, it's yeah, that's the reality of it. It's super hard.
1: I I usually tell people, if you want to know what I'm like, there's more of me in Fallout and Arcanum than just about any other game I've ever made. There's a whole lot of me in there. There's a lot of humor. There's a lot of how I like to think of systems working together, and how I want an RPG to be when it's moved to a computer from a tabletop. That, if you want to know me, play those two games, and you'll have a good idea of what I'm
2: like. Who did the? For some reason, I remember a little side quest in Fallout Two where I had to beat a scorpion at chess by talking to a plant. <laughs> I don't know if that's you, but that was funny. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> that
1: game, I only worked on like the first four months, but it was developed in ten months. That game. Oh wow, really? Yeah, all together, it was it was crazy, crazy schedule. Um, the, uh, I mean, like the boxing ring. I, I think that was Avalon wanted that, where you boxed people.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, you could become a champion and uh, bite someone's ear off. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i remember that pretty well
2: yeah there was some good humor overall between the all the fallouts frankly um i mean mostly the early ones because um then they became a little more serious i think with uh, fallout three but one and two there was yeah there was so much uh, there was so much funny moment but like funny dark moments it was just a right tone for me as far as uh uh humor something that is sometime over the top but yet not distracting in a way you know not in a bad way anyway I think that's important to the to the tone
1: of that game. Is it? It's got to be dark. It's post-apocalyptic. It's dark. People are dying off. But if it's not funny, it's not
2: (laughs) Fallout. You know, there was a thing. There was a thing in Fallout, and I'm sure it's not deliberate. I think it was from the French translation. uh, When sometime you you could receive or you could inflict uh, a critical hit, that would make the opponent blind. And uh, then there was this description at the bottom. And mm-hmm. so in French, in French, they would say, uh, you, uh, you know, you inflicted blindness, uh, like uh, um, it would say, um, a tragic blindness or something like, in French, right? Which was probably not the version in English. Uh, and then between, between parentheses, it would say, as if it was not tragic enough. <laughs> so, so it's probably the French translator who went like it's a really tragedy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's a,
0: that's 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 an interesting question. Uh, I gotta say that humor is what video games in general are pretty bad. Like I'm I'm 36 uh, and I'm playing video games for at least 30 years, uh, and uh, I can count on one hand uh, how many games made me actually laugh, and it would be Arcanum, Fallout, probably GTA 4, um, the new Wolfenstein games, uh, which have brilliant balance between the horrors of the Third Reich winning the war. And the the stupidness of its characters, and uh, you know that sick Hitler scene, awesome. Uh, why is that? Why, why why do you think this is a? I'm playing Gothic two right now, and it makes me laugh so hard at the moments. <laughs> it's 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 really really rare, especially these days.
1: For me, Sam and Max hit the road. Which yeah, was an adventure game from the '90s. That game made me laugh. So much. but um I think the thing is, so many people think they're funny, who aren't funny. So when you're putting together a game, if they get to put their stuff in, often, it's just it's it doesn't hit. It's the wrong tone. It's just not right. And it's 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 really hard to make a game that has humor and filter get everybody on the same page and then filter it correctly. It's just
0: and so most people don't try. And I think the problem is that in many games there's like a whole a whole void of seriousness and then there's a couple of jokes. I don't think you can do something well balanced between humor and grimdark, for example, like that. You gotta work on it from the very beginning. Like like Fallout. Yeah.
1: Those little skill decks cards were supposed to tell you this is the kind of Humor in the game because you're looking at the skills and you're reading this card and you're seeing somebody do something, and it's supposed to tell you that's that's what you're getting into right there. And the manual was the same way, you know, with, with the recipe on how to cook rat. It, it wasn't silly, it was just morbidly funny.
0: Yeah. It's like a, a grim parody or something like that. Yeah. See, that's why if we ever did a, a Russian one, I'd have to actually work with
1: Russians cuz I'm like how can we make fun of this but it's got to be just right. It's got to be it's got to hit that funny bone about what was funny about how the Russian side of the Cold War. Cuz we figured out how to make the American side of the Cold War funny. But if we couldn't do the Russian side, that wouldn't be fallout. If it can't be funny, it wouldn't be fallout. So that's a tough nut to crack.
0: Yeah. Especially given that you know you cannot just use Russian humor being an American and if even if you work with someone from Russia on on a project like that You will it will it it Surely will would be hard to 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 connect these cultures Though I I still think that uh, Russians and Americans have a lot of in in common, you know
1: We had a lot of people from armored warfare, which is a game obsidian made Yeah Uh, a lot of Russian developers stayed on and worked at Obsidian. And it's like a lot of them were not what I would expect it, And that's why I started thinking about Fallout Russia again. I'm like, I wonder if I could make a game with them that would be like Fallout in Russia. Um, and it never materialized, but yeah, it's people are, I mean, I worked at a North, I uh, was <laughs> a South Korean game company um, for six years. And that was great. It was people are the same everywhere in the sense of just wanting to enjoy what they do it's hard to describe to, uh, especially to people who don't travel a lot
0: it's sad that we have to uh, quit but I'm uh, I really hope that we will uh, do something like this again Tim thank you very much yeah. I'm, That's I'm cool. sure no that this is going to be a wonderful episode thank you very much Tim sure. thanks Raf uh, thanks Raf for getting the asked. idea to do this together yeah Yeah, of course thank you thank you bye, bye.